From Step and Connect, this is the Balance Matters Podcast, a neurophysical therapist's journey to make sense of balance. I am Erica DeMarch, your host, a physical therapist deeply passionate about teaching and training balance. After many interesting clinical discussions with colleagues and mentors over the years, I thought, wow, I need to share their expertise with others. On this podcast, I interview leading minds in medicine, health, and wellness to give you up-to-date information on balance, new innovation, and translate the most current research into practical clinical examples that you could start implementing right away. This is the Balance Matters Podcast. Today's episode, I will be interviewing Elena Newell. Elena received her Doctorate of Physical Therapy from the University of Pittsburgh in 2012. She completed her Women's Health Residency at University of Pittsburgh's Medical Center and joined their team in 2014. She is one of the few board-certified clinical specialists in oncology as well as women's health physical therapy. She's also a certified lymphedema therapist from the Lymphology Association of North America. Elena is the Pelvic, GI, and Sarcoma Cancer Clinical Coordinator at Oncology Rehab, as well as sitting on Oncology's Rehab's Breast Cancer and Chemotoxicity and Cancer Exercise teams. I am honored to have Elena Newell as a guest today to discuss the impacts of lower lymph lymphedema on gait and balance. Unfortunately, there's a limited amount of research on this topic, but in my opinion, an important topic that needs to be addressed and hopefully to spark more research. When I lectured at the National Lymphedema Network Conference on the relationship of lymphedema and balance, I was surprised how many individuals came up to me and told me they had issues with their balance or they were worried about falling. So welcome, Elena, and I'd like you to first tell us maybe how you look at balance and lymphedema differently at the oncology rehab clinic where you work. Thank you, and I'm excited to be here today. I think, just like Erica said, it, it's a really interesting topic that I think is just now starting to get looked at. Um, I know my background, starting actually from physical therapy school and then moving into women's health practice, I was always taught about how to look at the full body. And so when I started looking at and working with patients with lymphedema, I started to realize the measures and the aspects we are taught to look at in that population really doesn't necessarily include balance. Um, but having to merge those two worlds together for me became a really important thing. Also knowing we're movement specialists and wanting to get back to that concept, even within the lymphedema population. So a couple of things I always start to look at from various stuff when I meet them in the waiting room is what does their gait look like? How do they go from their sit to stand and where are they putting their weight in that transitioning all the way when they're walking from my waiting room back to the treatment rooms and we're starting that interview process. So that's kind of the very first piece we start to look at. Um, as we start to formalize and look from an evaluation standpoint, I, I ask them questions at the beginning of, you know, have they had any falls? Have they had near falls? Do they notice any changes in their gait? And I think that can be really telling in this population is that they do, people just usually haven't asked them quite yet. And so then when I start to look from an objective standpoint, um, we start with some of our very, very basic balance tests, even just looking at what is their narrow stance, what's their single stance, tandem stance. Um, but I really am going to be cognizant of what is their weight shifting ability to do their functional tasks. So that's how we initially start, but then keep diving deeper into it um, and really paying attention to what are their biomechanics during those transition 
exert movements of the day, as well as their gait pattern. Where are they being limited? Is it just the soft tissue from the lymphedema? Have they changes in their joint restrictions? Are they having sensory deficits or orientation difficulties based on their lymphedema? And that swelling being presentation separating those neurons within their, especially within their feet and their joints. Um, and then really recognizing how are they doing as they fatigue? So as they, do they have a change in their endurance? Has it shifted over time? Recognizing a limb that has more edema to it, muscles are going to atrophy, but they're also going to become progressively weaker the more that muscle stays in a contraction. So we look at it from a couple of different standpoints, and we can elaborate of any particular areas if you'd like to. No, definitely. Um, I like that you're able to look at the whole person. So you're not just looking at their girth and doing measurements, but looking at their function. Um, do you see that their function changes with uh, your other treatments then? Um, if you're, you know, or what are their goals, I guess, of those functions maybe to discuss. So if it was a sit to stand, um, I think of the client that we did together for um, the conference as a case study. And one thing I remembered was really looking at her sit to stand. And when she was doing her sit to stand, um, she was having difficulty because of her one um, limb. And you could see she was co-contracting, just really working really hard. She was had facial grimaces. Um, so how does that kind of play into that function? So I guess these would be two questions. If you see a client co-contract and really working hard on that um, transfer, how does that correlate with your treatment? And how might you change um, your treatment based on that so that they, you can address that so they're not actually co-contracting. Yeah, you know, that's a great point is co-contractions happen quite frequently. Um, what I notice when a swelling is present in a limb, and I, we should maybe take a small step back of looking at what lymphedema is. And so if I define lymphedema as an abnormal accumulation of lymphatic fluid within a territory, and it can be caused by multiple different reasons, Obviously, within my clinic being an oncology setting, a lot of our patients do come on with oncology history, and so they've had a mechanical change of their lymphatic system, most commonly from a removal of lymph nodes or they've had radiation therapy. But we do treat people with non-oncology-based lymphedema as well, especially in the lower extremities. And traditionally, when people think of edema and lymphedema, they think of that fluid being a superficial deficit. So they think of fluid being present within um, the adipose tissue as well as in the integumentary system. But we need to recognize that, that edema is not just superficial, but it runs deeper into their systems as well. So they do have that edema that's going to be present within their muscle cells, in and around their neurons, stretching their myofascial sheaths, um, as well as putting tension in and around joints. And so when we look at this co-contraction deficit, I think it's being caused from a couple of standpoints. One, when they go to activate and do a muscle contraction, they have a delay in that contraction, to, contraction of whatever muscle edema is present in. And so when their brains are saying, let me go ahead and stand up, they're going to try to utilize whatever muscles they have available to do that, knowing they're at a delayed contraction. So they're initially, if they have a lot of swelling in certain muscles, we see more predominant than others. Let's say, for example, on our sit to stand, oftentimes people are going to have a lot of swelling present in their quads, oftentimes more often than their hamstrings. So that quad delay happens. They're going to end up contracting those quads and hamstrings together to make those transitions happen. And so we see this pretty prevalent. It is interesting, though, because the more repetition somebody does, typically the better they get at whatever movement it is. 
So that first sit to stand is typically a lot more difficult for the individual with the co-contraction. And as they do repetitions of the movement, they actually get better at starting to isolate out. Um, from an edema standpoint, that co-contraction can actually be a deficit and something we need to work on changing for the individual. Because the more you contract a muscle and those muscle fibers shorten, you're actually closing off the lymphatic vessels during that acute muscle contraction phase. And so it's really crucial for our swelling and moving of fluid through our body that the muscle contracts, but it also fully relaxes. So if they're staying in a co-contraction state with all their movements, they have a deficit of increasing or a report of heaviness during the set activities. And part of that's due to that co-contraction occurring. So one thing I work with a lot of my patients on is working down and getting them to do certain activities in a very repetitious fashion so they can start to feel that fluidity of it but then breaking out. So if we, let's say, for example, we worked on our sit to stands. Okay, just go walk it out for a moment. I want you to change the movement and then we'll come back and do another sit to stand so they can start to reintegrate those principles of how they're making those transitions happen. So from an exercise standpoint, it's important to look at patients of are they co-contracting and then helping them learn how to isolate out and use their movements more individually so that they can actually make these, A, be more energy efficient and two, not taxing their lymphatic system farther by doing their normal daily activities. So one question then, it, when you were saying repetition, and um, one thing that kind of stood out to me was when you said repetition, but then you did a sit-to-stand and then had them walk. So would you have them do like 10 to 20 sit-to-stands in a row? Or are you worried about fatigue? Or would you kind of break a sit-to-stand, walk, and sit down, and then do it again? Like how Can you explain that a little further? Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I'm trying to sometimes get them to fatigue because they have a tendency to not actually um, push their strengthening levels to a sufficient amount to actually change their muscle contraction. So when we're thinking of you need to have that 70% um, to actually change a muscle strength, I'm actually have them oftentimes doing 5, 10, 20, depending on what their endurance level is. And then once they start to fatigue out, then I will have them, you know, we'll, we'll change up the movement so they just change it up with oftentimes we just walk it out or wiggle it out you know dance it out something to give them a different movement pattern and then come back and maybe then when they come back we'll only do two or three so that way they can reinforce the ideas of what they were doing but I want them to go long enough that they get out of their co-contraction get that muscle pumping so they can feel how their fluid can move through the limb and not stay in that co-contraction state but yeah it's more of a higher reps move a different pattern, come back to just a couple more to reinforce it. Okay, no, thank you. And then I guess also, do you change, you know, I'm kind of thinking of this client, um, I don't see as many clients with lymphedema, but um, do you also change the environment? So say their ankle range of motion, they don't have that dorsiflexion to be in a, you know, ergonomic or an efficient movement pattern to be able to get your feet underneath you. Would you educate and change that environment or kind of push them through so that they could can you kind of address on just like environmental constraints based on like biomechanical constraints? Yeah. I was just actually doing that yesterday with somebody. Um, when we were looking at her sit to stands, we were, that was our focus, but we kind of broke it down into different pieces. And so we can break it down into let's, let's just start getting you to squat and to feel what it is to actually get your weight to shift posterior and, and get the bottom, your backside towards back and arm shifting forward. But when we translated that into actually sit to stands, we were noticing on different chair heights and surfaces, she was able to do it. This particular patient is um, a seamstress. So she's often on lower stools or having to 
to surface as that role. And so changing that from just our standard, you know, stationary desk chair to having her do it on a rolly stool, having her doing it what's higher step stool or lower. And I think that is really crucial. And when we're trying to translate what this is into their normal daily activities, I want them to be able to do it in the various environments they're in at home. So a home kind of program with her, what we did is then translate that back to, you know, four times during her day, instead of doing a single sit to stand from her stool, she's actually going to do a set of five. So she can feel that um, breaking up her co-contractions, but regularly within the different environments. Also recognizing their, um, you had mentioned their ankle range of motion, I think can be really crucial. So sometimes we will change the platform or where their foot is positioned to be able to help them understand, okay, let me get that range support. Maybe they're on a little bit of an incline or a decline to help that range um, accommodation. And then over time, shifting how much that is. So they get used to those various surfaces. And even if there's someone with a, a single limb involvement, changing maybe what leg they're loading with. So a lot of times people suspect someone with lymphedema, and the patients themselves often feel their lymphedema leg is very stable. So they feel very strong and balance on it, but they don't feel very strong from a muscle, like a, an actual muscle contraction standpoint. So what I'll do is oftentimes let's put a block under their uninvolved limb so that way they have to start to load on the um, involved side and getting them to understand where they put in their weight relationships that's also something we see is or do we purposely have them stagger their feet and shift okay I want you to just use your uninvolved side and really get the balance support on this side and vice versa so they can understand where their strengths are but how they're working side to side as well no, that's, that's interesting. Cause I, I do that a lot with my clients that had a stroke, you know, using that first use or, um, and I guess that brings up, do you do, um, you know, compensatory versus restorative care? I always think of that and talk to a lot of my clients about that. Um, so my question would be when you, do you look at speed? So I'm thinking of somebody was doing, if we keep up the example of sit to stand and they have to rush to get to the bathroom and maybe they're slower, would you be teaching like a, a compensatory strategy based on foot position versus a restorative of this is going to force you to get stronger, but this is going to get you up faster? Or do you test even speed of sit to stand or gait with these um, type of clients? I'm glad you brought up the speed principle because it kind of goes back to the difficulty with their initiation of movements. Um, So a lot of them, they can pick up their speed with time and they can change their speed variability. So I do test their normal gait speed as well as what is their fast speed. And I oftentimes also want to look at what their slow speed is. How slow can they actually make that movement happen? Most of them are able to have variation within their speed. But if you were to look at it over, you know, that, um, if you were to look over a, a 20 foot span, most of them, that speed is not consistent. And so the time that it takes them to ramp up to their fast speed is longer than the average person is to ramp up to their fast speed. So I do measure sit-to-stands regularly, both in the five-time sit-to-stand as well as a 30-second sit-to-stand. And a lot of them are surprised because you can get, many will be within normal ranges for a five-time sit-to-stand, but they won't be for their 30 seconds. And that's where that fatigue aspect comes in, as well as they find their speed starts to slow down. So it's like they can ramp up, but they can't sustain it as long. Um, you know, it's interesting because I, having the different patients I've worked with over time, I have a tendency, I feel like, to not do as much compensatory strategies as I probably should at times. Um, I think it's also starting to break this concept of 
with working with someone with lymphedema is a lot of people are told from the very beginning they have to continuously compensate. And I really start to try to change their mental framework of let's see how much of your system we can actually improve. When we look at traditional lymphatic therapy, a lot of them are let's compensate for the deficit that's present, but not how can we improve within the system. And I think that's a kind of a parallel difference within our clinic treatment setting is we really try to optimize that. And once I feel like somebody's been optimized as much as we really can in terms of a functional standpoint, then maybe we'll pull in some compensatory strategies. But um, in this population, that's traditionally not happened as much. So I think I have a tendency to lean to not do as much compensatory as I maybe should at times with some patients. No, I think it's a, it's definitely a fine line and a mix. You know, I, I treat a lot of clients with Parkinson's disease and it's the same thing. You know, when do you say this is compensatory that will help you, but it's just a band-aid. It's not going to change your movement patterns in the long run or be efficient. Um, so that's a, a definitely a whole nother topic, but that actually brings up on just your education to clients. Um, you know, I did do a literature search before we talked and I always enjoy kind of the different topics. And one of them talked about, um, it was the postural stability in patients with lower lymph, um, lymphedema. And they talked about, they had balance impairments, but they weren't leading to increased fall risk. And I found that really interesting, you know, that they're seeing that there's balance impairments, but they're not falling more in this study. And we'd like to know just if you see that in your clients, are they having increased falls or are they changing their behavior or how we talk about compensations? Are they compensating and saying, I'm going to be more cautious. I'm not going to do this anymore. And that's why they're not falling. Um, And are you educating that component of activity versus um, being cautious because you're at more of a risk if you do fall um, with your lymphedema. Yeah, education and facial education around lymphedema is just such a crucial part of working in this population. And so we definitely educate in terms of um, an infection standpoint with this population often, including the education around fall risk. I would have to agree with the study. I definitely um, see these postural changes that occur with the individuals, but their fall rate is not much higher than our other populations are, especially within the oncology realm. I do find a lot of them have limited where they're going, what environments they're willing to do. And part of that has to do with falls, but I think a part of it also has to do with some of the other precautions they take. So like, let's take, for example, if they're going to go to the beach, they're a person who's most likely going to still wear shoes at the beach, or they're going to have additional support structures put in place to be able to help avoid infections. And I do think sometimes those environmental changes they're putting in place for their lymphedema in general is actually probably limiting their exposures to more complicated environments from a fall risk standpoint. Um, lymphedema is not a condition that we often see additional medication specifically for lymphedema, and so we don't have that additional deficit. If we look at the oncology population, um, many of these patients who have lymphedema will also have other concurrent symptoms that could also increase their perpetuated fall or back down on their environments as well. So a lot of them are going to have um, CIPN or chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. And if that's combined with their lymphedema, they're already modifying it because they can't have that same sensation. So they're changing their environment from multiple contexts. It'd be a very interesting study if they did take a populations and understand um, the patient's perspective as to what their limitations were. But I do feel like more patients kind of back themselves out of environments. And I think that is why it's important in this population to expose them to these different aspects, you know, to do complicated stairs and ramps and curbs. 
and rocks and getting them used to walking in those environments because a lot of them would like to return to it. They're just not sure how to. Um, and, and incorporating that in within therapy is super crucial to make sure they're using their limb and out and about. When we look at overall activity levels in this population, it's dramatically lower compared to other populations. And I think that might speak to the reduced environments as well. Yeah, that kind of brought up just, you know, we're both from Colorado. Um, do you see a lot of your clients that want to return to hiking or to any, you know, just outdoor sports that we do here? Or how does that, you know, if we might have a little different um, perspective versus some other places in the country? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it is always interesting working in Colorado compared to other populations just from our patients' BMIs and, and activities and availability. A lot of them do, um, but a lot of them have told to be really cautious of not having cuts or bruises or injuries. So I do feel like that's a higher level of education and things we have to work on, making sure they're wearing pants and having good shoes when they're going out to our outdoor environments. Um, I also think it can be very beneficial for the lymphatic system. So it's a heavy education point as well as empowering that patient to have tools with them to support their body during those times. So we do sometimes have to be a bit more creative in terms of compression use and what they may take with them to be out there. Um, But in Colorado, people definitely still want to get out even if they do have lymphedema. So it is a kind of a big piece we have to balance between the two aspects. No, definitely. So I guess that kind of leads me to the next question on when you were talking just about your garments and, um, you know, one thing is the time that we have with clients, you know, for either insurance reasons or various different reasons that is limited in the clinic. Um, so if you are limited with time and um, their pressure garments are increasing your time with your clients, how do you still incorporate this balance training um, into your sessions? Yeah. Um, In our clinic, we do use a little bit of a different treatment model compared to the traditional CDT or um, complete decongestive therapy. We use a little bit slightly different model. So we do use compression bandages at times, but at a much lower capacity than a lot of other clinics. So many of our patients will still um, receive manual lymphatic drainage or manual techniques to help reduce their lymphedema volume and exacerbation. But if I have a client, I'm trying to figure out how to structure this time. I do ensure that within my session that I still take at least five, 10 minutes max to focus on these functional based movements and balance work. Or the other way that I've done it with clients too is we'll alternate our sessions. So one session will work more from a traditional model. Um, and if we're using bandaging and compression and manual techniques, I'll use that on session one. And then on session two, we'll do an incomplete session where we don't even take the compression off. We just touch in with if they're having any major exacerbations. And we'll get back into the gym and work an entire session in this standpoint. Incorporate incorporating in some endurance training as well as our balance strength and flexibility training with that. The other thing I have noticed when um, when I historically use more CDT, what I did is oftentimes we'll talk about it in phases. So during phase one, I may not be incorporating it quite as often, but as that patient's transition into phase two, instead of discharging to home care for their maintenance phase, considering um, transitioning at that point to more of a balanced program and some of more of our traditional techniques we think about gait and balance. So maybe during your phase one, be more intensive with your bandages and manual drainage. But during phase two, don't consider that discharge yet. Think of considering and keeping that patient on for another month or two and really work these aspects can make a big difference in that long-term trajectory. No, interesting. 
Um, is there any, um, you know, just looking at that continuance of care then, uh, you know, the different stages, are there programs for like, say, a yoga or Tai Chi that is more geared for people with lymphedema? Or is it, um, there's not as much, um, just like a, a specialized class, I guess I'm thinking. Yeah, it's definitely starting to grow. Um, so when we look at non-U.S. countries, um, yoga has been evaluated quite a bit in terms of how yoga postures can really support lymphedema um, and help that fluid pumping movement. So I definitely incorporate a fair amount of yoga into a lot of the training I do with my individuals. Um, there is a group out of Chicago who... Um, one of the DME companies, and we can put those their notes in, they've actually designed yoga classes that are specifically for individuals with lymphedema, and those are available on Zoom right now. So I have been referring some patients that they want a full class setting that focuses on lymphedema. But the concepts that we apply in yoga really work on those elongations and work on muscle activations and transitions. Um, tai Chi is also amazing because I mentioned that, that co-contraction and the difficulty initiating movement. And that's such a big piece of Tai Chi is being able to transition from one direction to another and having that fluidity of their movement. So I think they're both really great types of exercises. Um, there hasn't been a whole lot looking into what's the best exercise for lymphedema. Historically, we used to always talk about aqua-based therapy, but now that's such a difficult thing for people to be able to do that I think leaning into some of these land-based but movement qualities, contract, relax, movement through the patterns is definitely the direction to go. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and I, I think just that wellness piece to have something ongoing, you know, is yeah. super important. I know as a therapist, once you discharge somebody, you want to be able to have them have that continuum. Um, and I guess, um, do you also, the one last question would be um, thinking of yoga and Tai Chi and just balance exercises even range of motion exercises with your lymphedema, do you do anything eyes closed trying to get the somatosensory system involved or is it mostly eyes open during these exercises? Um, both. I am a big proponent of sometimes taking the simplest exercises and just tweaking them a little bit, right? Let's change our surface or let's change what balance systems we're using. When we talked about education, that is one thing I do educate all my lymphedema patients and recognizing what the different balance systems they have and how we need to work them all. Recognizing they probably are not getting as strong as sensory input from their lower extremities. And so let's definitely do eyes closed. Let's do complex surfaces and make their vestibular system kick up. Um, that is definitely a high incorporation. So yeah, I, I love doing the eyes closed. Most of my patients kind of lean when we have to do those sections. No, I think that's a, across the board, right? Yeah. Um, so I guess if you have any um, closing tips to, one, uh, if a client with lymphedema is listening, you know, on how to advocate for their care and um, looking if they have a balance issue, you know, how to talk to their healthcare provider about it. And then also to a therapist who is working with somebody with lymphedema and also a, a therapist maybe who doesn't, um, you know, similar to myself, maybe that's not specialized in lymphedema, um, also knowing is there any similarities or differences that you would let them know for lymphedema versus just edema of a limb, say, after a joint replacement or something like that? Yeah, so um, why don't we start looking at, um, for the patient's standpoint, 
is I think then when we talk about limiting environments, that would be something I'd have them self-reflect on. What activities have they stopped doing since their lymphedema involved developed? Um, what activities would they like to get back to or were they having areas that they report difficulty in? Recognizing th therapists are very skilled in those sets to be able to help them return to functional activities. And sometimes when you're talking to your provider, because um, talking to your providers, tell them, I don't want to go to lymphedema therapy. Tell them I want to go to physical therapy or occupational therapy to be able to help for their functional needs. And that may help them get to a therapist who maybe is more uh, focuses on balance and strengthening than thinks of our traditional lymphatic drainage techniques. So I think that may be a step one. Um, for therapists who have, you know, if you are someone who focuses on lymphedema, I would really urge you to take a couple functional measures into consideration when you're intaking those patients, as well as at your discharge. We have seen a little bit of change um, in more of the breast cancer population. They did show a change in balance after doing complete decongestive therapy. And so I think we realize there's going to be some changes there as well but you do have those skills already in your wheelhouse to take that next level and don't consider discharge just when the garment becomes available for the individual but really consider the discharge when they have returned to their functional activities that they got limited by from their lymphedema or other impairments at the time um, when you're trying to understand how are these patients going to look a little bit different, I think recognizing, especially in our lower limb, there's some major clinical changes that happen around their joints. So most lower extremity lymphedema patients are going to be into slight hip flexion. They're going to have difficulty getting full terminal knee extension. Their ankle range in motion is going to have a deficit. So oftentimes they're going to lack their heel strike as well as their toe off. And they're often going to compensate with doing a circumduction method. And so as you're looking at those components, it'll kind of lean you into where to build their strengthening. But again, that hip flexion, lack of terminal knee extension, and lack of ankle and potentially foot range of motion can really lean to those compensations. So most of them are going to have a flat-footed presentation. They're going to really struggle moving up onto their toes and the balls of their feet. So getting those anterior-posterior weight transitions, super crucial. And more of their dynamic movement, especially in their gait, is going to be lateral versus anterior posterior. So really working on their transitions and the elongation of their gait can be a benefit for them to understand that weight shift necessity to maintain their balance with their walking. Oh, those are great tips. <laughs> Thank you so much. So yeah, is there anything else? This was um, super helpful for me to, to kind of look at this population and hopefully um, it helps others. But is there anything else that you'd like to add or um, closing uh, maybe a, a favorite exercise or something that um, would help others? Oh, that's always hard, right? The favorite exercise in your wheelhouse. Um, I think my one of my, honestly, my favorites is the, um, it's a full body squat. Uh, going from that full transition up. And I do, even in this population, we do full squats, even trying to get down um, all the way down to the ground, but getting them to be comfortable with that weight shift transition to me is one of the most beneficial ones. So that's definitely my favorite popular, uh, favorite exercise within this group and incorporating their arms. Um, don't be afraid to load these patients. 
and to push them and to build the health of that lymphatic system by pushing them towards their end ranges. So be comfortable there. And remember that the lymphatic system can heal and do amazing things like all of our other body systems. So be willing to look outside of your compensation mechanisms and take that patient to where they're desiring to go. Oh, this is, that is so good. Um, you know what? I was about to end, but I had one more question for you. So when you said that full squat, do you um, teach a lot of your clients then, even if they have, you know, a pretty significant um, lower limb lymphedema to get up and down from the ground? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. The squat, I was like, oh, are they, is that part of your training too for the um, balance mm-hmm. and dysfunctional task? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, and I hope everyone um, learned something that we can bring to the clinic tomorrow. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. If you liked this episode, I hope you would consider subscribing to the Balance Matters podcast on our website and iTunes. Share it with your friends, colleagues, and show some love on social media. For a new podcasts like mine, those reviews are everything. To stay connected with us, follow Step and Connect on social media and visit our website, stepandconnect.com, to learn more about our educational courses, resources, and products. I hope you learned something today and will join me on this journey to make sense of balance.